Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Reverend Dr. Cheryl Kirk Dugan, Professor of Religion at the Shaw Divinity School at Shaw University, speaking on the topic of womanism. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about you, your background, um, you know, the work that you do that's brought you to speak on this topic? Sure. I've got four degrees. I've studied as a child music from the time of five. I think I sang my first solo in church when I was four. I started taking piano when I was five. Came up through the church, started playing at age 11. Couldn't figure out what I wanted to major in computer science, pre-med, or music. And then the summer before my senior year in high school, I ended up going to Hampton University. At that time, it was Hampton Institute for a music program. Fell in love all over again with music, decided I'd get a music degree. Couldn't decide on which one, so I decided to do the crazy thing of doing a double major in voice and piano. Went on to do a master's in voice. Went on to New York to pursue what I thought was God's call in my life to do be an international operatic singer. Meanwhile, back at the farm, my late husband proposed. He told me he loved me on his birthday, and then proposed the next day, said that I could take all the time that I needed to make up my mind, but that God was in charge, and that that was cool. So a year later, we were married. A year after that, I was in seminary, because I had my second call to ministry. The first time I told God, mm, no, thank you. <laughs> you called me to be in music, you didn't call me to be in the church. <laughs> uh, after a week between Super Bowl Sunday of 1984 and that Tuesday, it was clear that God definitely called me to ministry. I said, okay. I was in Austin, Texas at the time. My late husband was a professor of uh, in business, economics, and intellectual property and business law at the University of Texas. Like a long story short, in a week I was enrolled. Within about two years, I figured out that God did not call me to be a local parish uh, pastor to pastor congregation. Rather, I was to be a pastor to pastor, so that meant I needed to get a Ph.D. After graduating from Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, I then began my doctoral work at Baylor University, graduated with the Ph.D. in Religious Studies, December 19, 1992. It was a very rainy and stormy day. In fact, <laughs> that I might not have to build an art to get to graduation. <laughs> and then I began teaching and doing music at uh, Meredith College from 93 to 96. Now, previously I had taught at Prairie View University in music. After being at Meredith, I received a call inviting me to come to California to be the executive director of the Center for Women and Religion at the Graduate Theological Union, which at that time was a consortium of about nine seminaries uh, three Catholic, five Protestant, and one non-denominational University of Unitarian. Had a wonderful time in, in California, and when that position phased out, I was also on faculty, so I got to work with doctoral students and master's students at the uh, GTU, which is in Berkeley, California. Then it was time to transition elsewhere, and one of my colleagues said, Shaw has an opening for position of women's studies in the Divinity School. It has your name all on it. I'm going, really? I don't need to go back to North Carolina. There are 48 states in the Union other than California and North Carolina. <laughs> Nevertheless, came to Raleigh, had an interview, 
And right after the interview, the ones say, we want to hire you. We need to know as soon as possible. I'm going, North Carolina, I don't know. I thought about it. Immediately after leaving the interview, I had to go to Tennessee, where a friend of mine invited me to be a, a theologian in residence, which I did for a week. And on my way back from Tennessee, I took a van to the Atlanta airport, getting ready to fly back to San Francisco and then going home. And as it was early morning, as it became daylight, I'm going, okay, God, really, I need to let Shaw University know if I'm going to take a position or not. I need a sign. Well, my God has a sense of humor. You know, on the freeways, there's nothing but trees and trees and trees until you get to an exit. Well, after I said I need a sign, less than 10 minutes later, I'm now alert. I'm looking, you know, side to side, seeing what I can see. And there I saw a sign saying Shaw, S-H-A-W. It was this huge sign, sort of an off-white, silverish color, about 30 or 40 feet in the air, with blue letters and a blue border around it. There was nothing else there. There was no, like, Shaw Enterprises, no building, nothing. I went, okay, all right, God, your pizza work. I asked you for a sign. Can you give me a literal, actual sign? And that meant, I said, well, I guess we're coming back to North Carolina, so we moved back to Raleigh. We lived in Durham previously, although I taught at Meredith. But 2004, realizing with the traffic on 40 going, do you really want to drive that distance every day or whenever you have to come in? I'm going, mm, no. So we bought a home here in Raleigh, and I've been at Shaw University Divinity School since 2004. Now, the one of the reasons why I got interested in movement studies, one was... When I was in seminary, a group of the women students said, let's form a women's group. So I'm thinking, why do we need a women's group? Because in my music years, I've always been around guys. I've always had great relationships with men. I had a phenomenal uh, parents because my parents were partners and God was the head of our home. So I didn't understand sexism. I didn't grow up with that that I was conscious of. I understood racism. Didn't understand sexism until I started hearing people's stories about that they weren't the son their dad wanted, or the stories of domestic violence, the, the stories of women being slighted or paying, being paying less money for with the same credentials and same experience. So I had an aha moment in seminary. Then when I got the offer for Meredith, no one said I had to focus on women, but in my mind, I'm going, you're at an all-women's school, mm-hmm. you must you must focus, you know, on women's studies. So that was a, a, a moment of formation because then I was intentional about every class, making sure that there were always books written by women, included articles written by women. There may have been some by men as well, but I was intentional about that, intentional about having as many different racial ethnicities in the readings also included, and to ask the questions like, who gets to speak? So like in the biblical text, is a woman speaking? Is a narrator speaking for the woman? Because very rarely do women get to speak. And so I began to interrogate those texts and began to interrogate life. When I moved back to Raleigh also, and I can't remember her name right now, but she was a social worker and came to me saying, I've been looking for you and I was told you're here. I said, oh, why are you looking for me? She mentioned that she was a social worker and that they had a program where they were trying to get a language so that clergy and social workers could speak the same language when dealing with clients who were even experiencing domestic violence or sexual assault. So then I got interested in that area. So I guess in some you could say life experience and my own curiosity and the blessings that I've had as being a liberated woman since I was a child 
has really pressed me to work with women, to talk about women's issues, to talk about people's issues, that how can we work for justice? And there are about three other uh, major events in my life that have really pushed me toward justice. One was my dad, Rudolph Valentino Kirk, was the first African-American deputy sheriff of the state of Louisiana since Reconstruction. He served for 27 years in the force and never had to fire his gun in the line of duty and was never injured. So justice was in and around my house even before I had that language. And people would always call, Mr. Kirk, can you help me out here? Mr. Kirk, my child is in jail. Are they about to seize my property? So while he was not an ordained minister, he, was, he lived that life of service. Mm-hmm. When I was in seminary, one of my uh, faculty, Dr. Ishmael Garcia, at Austin Presbyterian took uh, several of us on a fact-finding tour to Central America. So we saw El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Costa Rica. On those trips, that was my first experience with meeting people at the refugee camps and seeing a baby running around with a diaper on because the only diaper the mom had to wash it out. To have an instance of where, although they told us not to drink the water, not to drink the fruit because you might have a bacteria, a parasite, there was a lovely group of people who offered us orange juice, and all of us knew instinctively to say no to their gift of orange juice would be the height of insensitivity and the height of disrespect. So we drank the juice. Also during that trip, I got to stand at the foot of a crypt of Archbishop Oscar Romero and realizing that he was martyred, assassinated as he was given the Eucharist, which some people know as the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, I mean, that was, that was riveting for me. And the other event was way before seminary during my New York years, I was doing a tour with, with a guy by the name of Howard Carpendale, and so we did 30 concerts in six weeks all over Germany. And it was standing on, at that time, the West German side of the wall and recognizing that when people got over the wall, they weren't free. They had to get over them. Then there was a path, maybe about five or eight feet of grass. Then there was a hurricane fence. If you got over the hurricane fence, you would not be shot. And so those were very telling moments, you know, in my life. And also the relationship that my parents had. My mother was always a great listener, always played classical music. And so I caught myself as very fortunate. So I would say the accumulation of all that plus incredible love and support of my late husband, all of that uh, being both mentor and friend and confidant and cheerleader, all of those experiences, the blessings of having other family members and friends who love me to life and beyond, all of those press me to want that for other people. I am really looking forward to hearing you speak more about you know, womanism, and, you know, as you reviewed the notes that I sent, you know, I peppered in uh, a dash of feminism. Because I think that I would love for you to do some defining of terms for us. Um, You know, because I feel like womanism and feminism are sometimes used interchangeably. And Mm -hmm. at the fundamental level they are very different, but they do have intersecting points. So could you share with us, you know, from your lens, how you would define the terms womanism and feminism? Absolutely. 
this is where history is so important. When Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon, who just passed this year in uh, September of 2018, when she was a graduate student working on her doctorate at Union Theological Seminary in New York, she looked around and was trying to figure out what lens could she use to interpret the lives of women that she grew up with, poor black women in Kannapolis, North Carolina. She recognized that historically, and I'm saying historically because sometimes this disciplines like black theology, feminist, womanist, mujerista, Latina, Asian feminism, etc., they can change over time. Historically, black theology, which was started by the late uh, Dr. James Cone, who also died in the spring of this year, problematized the issue of race. In fact, in his uh, next to the last book that he wrote, The Cross of the Lynching Tree, which won the 2018 Gravelmeyer Award, which is the highest award one can get for religion, uh, a book in religious studies, it was entitled The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And so throughout, he's looking at how has race been used to oppress people. And many other scholars, Gerard Wilmore, um, J.D.O.S. Roberts, and other countless of other scholars, uh, Dwight Hopkins and others have written theology problematizing the issue of race. We also had liberation theologians uh, like Gutierrez, Gustavo Gutierrez, Bernardo Walsh, and others from Central America was problematizing the challenges of Central America of how people were being oppressed, especially poor Latinx people. So that was in the 60s. Also in the 60s, Gloria Steinem wrote her book, The Feminist Mystique. Mm -hmm. After she and several of her classmates gathered at a 20th class reunion, and they recognized, wait a minute, we have these degrees, we have these careers, and we're still oppressed. Then, and unfortunately even now, we still have instances where a woman with the same credentials, the same level of experience, the same capacity and proven track record of doing work will get less money than a man for the same, doing the same work with the same credentials. So at that time, Gloria and others decided that they needed to do something about this issue. So they began to problematize the issue of gender. Now, they were specifically looking at gender of middle-class women because that was their experience. They were middle-class white women. They weren't looking at race. They weren't looking at class. Mm-hmm. When Dr. Katie Cannon comes along, she says, but I need to have a language, a concept, a way, a methodology, an epistemology of way of knowing to talk about the poor black women that I've grown up with. And she was blessed that she would go back to her great-grandmother, all who had been educated, who understood education was so incredibly important. So as she began to do her work, she looked around and gravitated toward the work of Alice Walker. Alice Walker coined the term womanist and had used it in a few essays prior to the publication of her book, In Search of Our Mother's Garden, colon, A Womanist Prose. And in that book, there are short stories, there are articles, there are reflections. And at the very beginning of the book, she defines the concept of womanist, which she says is like purple is to lavender. And she also says that uh, womanist uh, can be um, used to think of, think in terms of black feminism. Now, Katie Cannon took that definition and then did her work and basically started womanist thought 
in the academy. And with um, Alice Walker said, for example, woman is the feminist as pur purple is to lavender. She also talks about womanism in terms of there's no separation other than for reasons of health. So, for example, if I decide that I need to be apart, I'm exhausted, I need time to reflect, then I can choose to separate myself. Another part of the definition is, is or a womanist is outrageous and charged, audacious all the time. So in other words, with womanism comes a sense of empowerment, a sense of I can do, and it's also both individual and communal. Mm -hmm. It's about how do I empower myself, how do I empower others? Womanism also says one who can love women and men sexually and non-sexually. And for some persons, this is problematic because they feel that uh, LGBTQIA uh, concerns are not of faith, and others of us embrace that, yes, we, you, love, you don't control who you love, and what does it matter who you love as long as you love with integrity and you love with respect. And so uh, Dr. Cannon has started to use that in the academy, and she, along with Dr. Cheryl Townsend Jilts, who teaches at Colby College and also at the wonderful radio program, uh, applied to the AAR, American Academy of Religion, to have a program unit. The AAR is, uh, along with SBL, have, is a huge organization, and we have an annual meeting always the weekend before Thanksgiving. And at that, in that case, what we do is papers are presented with various groups, and so this is a way of having a space to develop the thought of womanism. We also have an in-gathering where we have people who are who confess, who self-describe. That's another thing. I can't say you or anyone else is a womanist. Womanist is a confessional term. One gets to say that they're a womanist with these caveats. If one to embody to enflesh womanism means I have to be a woman of African descent. That's for the embodiment. In terms of epistemology, how do we know, how do we describe in terms of a method of writing and a way of thinking that's open for anyone. So womanism went further than black theology and feminist theology or feminist thought because from the beginning, womanism problematized the issue of race, the issue of class, the issue of gender. In my own work, I've expanded, so when I'm looking at womanist thought, when I'm thinking that way, when I'm doing analysis, whether it's of, of a novel, a movie, a scripture, a song, it's a life case study, I want to ask the questions about gender, who speaks, who doesn't get to speak, what is their embodiment, ask the question about race, what impact does one's race have on how one's treated or oppressed, the question of class, the question of ability. Therefore, when I go to a, a public building, I'm looking at, is it easy for a person in a wheelchair or a person on crutches or a person maybe carrying a child to get in the space? And also age. Are we listening to our young people? Are we listening to the children? Are we listening to our seniors or have we relegated them to, oh, they don't matter anymore? And so womanism gives me that platform where I can ask all those questions. And so that's sort of a, um, a historical point mm -hmm. of view about 
you know, about womanism and and what it means and and how how one uh, can understand and and describe it. And so, some people will see it as some people call themselves black feminists, as apart from womanist. Okay. Uh, some and so now today, some womanist, some rather some feminists who happen to be white or Latinx or Asian, what have you, they will also ask some of these questions. One of the important things is to realize that when we're in the midst of analysis, no one can speak, in other words, ex cathedra, no one can speak for all people at all times. Oftentimes, those who are imbued with privilege due to white patriarchal, white supremacist patriarchal misogynistic beliefs, many of them think they can speak for everybody all the time and, and their way goes. And unfortunately, in these United States of America and sometimes globally, White privilege is very much alive and well. White supremacist patriarchy is very much alive and well. If that were not so, you would not have black and brown bodies being detained at the border. You wouldn't have police who are killing people and asking questions second. And I think sometimes that happens because many of our police have been in the military, and in the military you're taught to shoot to kill, not to shoot to wound. Mm-hmm. And so I think our whole philosophy of policing needs to change. I think we need to have more compassion for our police, but I think our police also need to have more compassion for people. And I was reading a very interesting quote last night where it said, four people have died because of romaine lettuce being poisoned by E. coli, and therefore you can't find any romaine lettuce on any shelf on any grocery store in the United States. Yet still over 300 people have been killed from gun violence, way more than that probably in the last few months. We've had all kinds of tragedies, going back to Orlando and Charleston and recently in California, not to mention Las Vegas. But again, think about white patriarchal supremacist misogyny. You don't hear anything about that shooter in Mm -hmm. Las Vegas. He was never called a terrorist, and if having a gun, gunning down hundreds of people, killing over 50 people, if that's not terrorism, I don't know what it is, but that language was never used. And so I fought the media, and I want to call them on the carpet for how they frame their story. The shooter in that case was a white, wealthy male. Therefore, he doesn't get to be called a terrorist. But had he been of any color, or a younger white male, or a skinhead, might have been called a terrorist. And mm-hmm. so a lot of times the media has a lot of responsibility for how we see things which is why it's so important that we train our children, train our adults to think. We shouldn't just make assumptions just because someone says it. So is it really so? Does it make sense? And so that's the platform womanist gives. It says, question everything. Look at the history. Look at the context. Look at who's benefiting. And the last thing I'll say on that at this moment is that there's a book by Tan Deco who teaches at Meadville Lombard University of Unitarian Seminary. It's absolutely brilliant. The title is Learning to Be White. And what she argues is that no one is born white. They may be of Greek or Norwegian or British or other kinds of heritages, but they're not born white. But that you are culturated to that because there's a sense of white privilege across the world. And that if it's, that was the same back in the day, if you're white, you're white. If you're black, step back. If you're brown, stick around. 
And when you think about what assumptions people make when they see black bodies versus when they see white bodies versus when they see white male bodies versus white female bodies, because that a lot of white female bodies are not respected, lets me know because of the numbers of domestic violence that continue to happen in our country. So womanism is an amazing platform. Again, it's confessional. I claim myself as womanist. Others will claim themselves as black feminists. Some people choose other labels. What's most important to me is that doing the work of justice to question all acts of oppression. And I said I was going to say one more thing, but this just popped in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) When you look at many people, and this is no disrespect, but many people who say they're pro-life, they're not really pro-life because they are for the death penalty and they also are those who support private school, parochial school, and do not support public school. So if you are pro-life, then you also would, you are anti-abortion, you are, you are against the death penalty, and you are for supporting families and not blaming people because they are poor. Many people, we have the working poor, there are people, especially like in cities like Atlanta, Houston, even here in Raleigh, especially like in San Diego, they are the working poor. They sleep under tents and go to work every day. But because of gentrification, because big corporations have come into many places and sent the housing values out of the, out of the galaxy, people who own homes cannot afford to live anymore. And I think that's egregious. And I fault our government for that. I fault all our congresspersons. I fault city council because what we could have done when prices go up, if a person already owns the house, they could say, all right, for the time that you live in this house, your taxes, let's say their taxes were, say, $1,000 a year, then your taxes will never go more than 1% at a max out where they could probably afford it. But I've seen too many instances where, say, a house, is in a neighborhood, let's say the houses are bad at 180000 mm-hmm. Someone else comes in, buys a house, uh, tears it down, and builds a new house that's now valued at 400000 Well, the person who can afford the 180000 may be retired, who probably owns the house, they're not going to be able to pay the taxes when now their house is going to be valued at two hundred fifty or $300,000 because a neighbor's house is valued at 400000 And that has happened all over the country. And so, unfortunately, too often capitalism equals greed, and you can't take it with you. And so what if we decided to do more work together as power with rather than power over? You know, one of the things that I really like you know, the womanist platform as a, you know, or identity as a platform to really question everything, you know, not just um, issues around gender or issues around race or, you know, but more broadly, as you just spoke to. So, you know, in in your opinion, can, a, well, I mean, can a person self-identify in as both womanist and black feminist 
or do or are are they so fundamentally different that a choice really needs to be made? I think that's an individual choice. Again, it depends upon your location. For example, there are many scholars in literature who use the language of black feminist. For example, like Audre Lorde. The late Audre Lorde was an incredible, incredible poet and author. So it's a matter of a choice, and then once a person chooses that label, then they get to self-define what that means for them. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it has to be an either-or. It can be a both-and. It's like, what do you mean by it? And then how do you live it? How do you practice it? Because for me, womanism is not only about thought and how I do analysis, whether it's music or scripture or plays or daily life. It's about how do I live? Do I respect everyone I see? Do I speak to people? Do I acknowledge their presence when I'm checking out the grocery store? Good morning, or do I assume that the cashier is an extension of the cash register, that they don't matter, that the people who pick up my garbage don't matter? So for me, that's what woman is. It's both an embodiment, it's a lived experience in everything, in every phase of my life, whether I'm preaching or teaching or sitting having a conversation, whether I'm taking a yoga class. It is about empowering others to be themselves. It's about respecting my own space. It's realizing I don't have to do everything for everybody. It's about recognizing that's not my job anyway. That's God's job. It's important to me then to be the best steward I can of the resources that God has given me. So my time, my finances, my energy, my creativity. So that's, for me, uh, the platform that womanism allows me. So for other people, it's about choosing. Uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Dolores Williams, who wrote a book um, that she talks about this is the Wilderness is the title of the book, and it just celebrated its 25th reunion. We honor that also at the AAR. Uses Hagar to talk about what does it mean to be surrogate, what does it mean to be black and female. And in one of her earlier articles, she mentioned that it's a confessional term where you get to choose, you know, who you are, what type of work you do. And what's fascinating is Hagar is one, the one person in the entire canon uh, not mentioning the apocryphal and the other extra texts, but Hagar actually names God. Hagar says, calls God Elroy, the, uh, the one, I, the God who sees. And so it, it's so intriguing to me, although Hagar uh, is the, I would say, secondary wife or concubine of Abram, who's married to Sarai. So it's, it's interesting, again, that's why context is important. So in the time of Hebrew Bible, women were the property of their fathers or their husbands. And so you're not a free individual. And many times women don't get to speak in the text because they're not important. Women mm-hmm. end up being important, especially in Hebrew Bible, to marry the right man, to have the right son, to inherit the land. Why is that the case? The covenant in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 where God promises Abram, because his name has not yet changed to Abraham, three things. One, he would make his name great. In other words, God would have relationships with the, the uh, offspring of Abram for, in, in perpetuity for all time. So the relationship piece. Two, they would have land. And three, he would have a son. So having the right son is about having been able to inherit the land. So that's why procreation is so important to inherit the land. 
and why girls in many instances don't matter other than to be the uh, holder of the sperm, which is interesting when we think about colloquialisms, when people say a bun in the oven, that's because originally people thought that the sperm was everything needed to create a child. The woman's womb was merely an incubator. It was only after the discovery of the microscope by living folk that they realized, oh, there is an egg and a sperm, and you need both to create a child to create a fetus to play to become a child. So I did again, not know that. <laughs> I did not know that. Yep. I'm telling you. And see, that's why knowing history is so important. So when I went to seminary, I really got an appreciation for history because you don't know certain things. So, for example, also in the text, a lot of times when they're talking about demons, that could mean anything. That could mean mental illness. That could mean a troubled soul. That could mean because they didn't have the technology we have. They didn't have microscopes and MRIs and CAT scans. They didn't know about bacteria. They didn't know about viruses. They just know what, when people eat certain things, they can get sick. Or when people do certain things, then things don't work well. And that's why it's important to know history. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift a little bit. I was doing some reading and I discovered an article that was discussing this very point, and it was something that I was not familiar with. And then, you know, looking at it a little deeper and connecting ways that black and brown girls experience their classrooms, it really seemed to have such a significance and not a lot of attention. What are your thoughts? You know, how does a woman's experience of caring influence learning outcomes for black and brown girls? Great question. Let me make sure I understand. The context of the article was centered around classroom teaching. And it was examining the ways that women of color were a better like better able to interact with black and brown girls in their classrooms because they had this womanist experience of caring and that produced better outcomes for the students does that make okay, sense okay got it <laughs> okay what before i do that i wanted to find some more specifics from Alice Walker's definition. I did find it again. It's in her book, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. And I'm quoting different parts of it. From womanism, opposite of girlish. Frivolous, irresponsible, not serious. So it's the opposite of that. A black feminist or feminist of color. From the black folk expression of mothers to female children, you act in womanish, like a woman. Usually referring to outrageous, audacious, courageous, or willful behavior. Wanting to know more and in greater depth than is considered good for one interested in grown-up doings, acting grown-up, being grown-up, interchangeable with another black folk expression, he's trying to be grown, responsible, in charge, serious. So there are four parts of that, but I just want to um, interweave the definition with my response to your question. And I'll use it by doing this analogy. If I'm speaking Russian, and if all I know is Russian, then I'm going to have some challenges when I go to Spain. I need to understand Spanish culture. 
and speak the language of Spanish. That does not mean that as a Russian I cannot learn Spanish. I cannot embrace Spanish culture. But if I cannot speak the language, if I have not had the experience, if I've grown up in Siberia, other places where it's below zero weather, if I've never been to a place like the Mediterranean, it's going to be culture shock. I won't know how to navigate until I study and know. Prior to what was supposed to be, and I'm using that word very carefully, desegregation, actually integration, because we've never yet achieved integration. In fact, we have more segregation now than ever, and I'll speak to that in a moment. Black kids were in schools that were taught by black teachers who knew what it means to be black, who knew the possibilities for lynching and for oppression. I mean, if you go back and read history, you will see that black people have been, were stolen, kidnapped, bought our, and are sold from the continent of Africa. So if anyone says, as some of the reconstructionists and revisionist history, historians are saying, that, oh, they came in for better life, that is a bold-faced lie. People were captured. Then they were intentionally separated so that no two people were together who would speak the same language. They were abused. Many times they were hung, they were lynched, they were beat up. They were put like sardines in the bowels of slave ships. And many times people died on the way, and they were all kept together. Some who could get a loose jumped into the ocean. So there are probably hundreds of thousands of dead African bodies in the Atlantic Ocean. And once they got here, people were beat. Uh, oftentimes, masters, white men, would sleep with their slaves and have children by their slaves, as well as sleeping with their wives. And so that's the, the whole piece of history where oftentimes in small communities where you had white, black women doing domestic work, the white women who were over the house knew that their husbands were sleeping with the maids. Sometimes that was fine by them. There were these arrangements. What was the maid going to do? Who was she going to complain to? If she went to the police, they would just laugh it off. If she told the mistress of the house, the woman of the house, then oftentimes she'd be blackballed and wouldn't get any work. So what was she supposed to do? Mm -hmm. Our government has systematically whipped between welfare laws and between chain gangs and un un uh, unjust sentencing. For example, if she with the sentence you get for crack cocaine versus cocaine, Hundreds of thousands of black and brown bodies are now in jail because of the color of their skin. Whereas little Joey, who's black, may have a little bit of crack cocaine, he's going to jail. But Jonathan, who may be white, whose parents have an, an, an attorney on the retainer, will call the judge, oh, judge, your honor, our son's just going through a rough patch. We'll get into treatment. So Jonathan never has a record. Joey does. And there's countless examples of that, countless examples of where uh, it was illegal for black people to get married. It was illegal for them to learn how to read and write. And so when Reconstruction happens, what are you supposed to do? You're free, but you can't read and you can't write and you didn't have any property. Well, the only thing they knew in the instance was farming. Now, not all black people and brown people were enslaved. There were some free folk at the same time who were able to be in the Northeast and who were able to have lives and, and, and contribute to the communities. 
a lot of those in the South were not as fortunate. So they ended up being back on plantations uh, doing farming again and sharecropping. But a lot of times they still had to then buy the seed and other things from their landowners. Many of them lost property that they did have. And so we don't even have the time for me to go through and talk about every instance where it seems that black folks are often made progress, that there are rules and regulations that are pulling people back down. I will mention a couple, and then as I get back to talking about the little girls in classrooms, Dwight Eisenhower's president, was it, before being president, was a general in the Army, and when he was in Germany, saw the Audubon. Well, the Audubon was their interstate highways. Said we need to have that. Great idea. But why was it necessary for all of the interstates, the United States, whether they're north, south, or east, or west, to go through black and brown communities? Here in the Raleigh-Durham area, uh, 147 went right through Haytown, which is a major, major black community with a lot of black businesses. Where I grew up in Lake Charles, Louisiana, I tend went through some areas of black businesses, of cleaners, dry cleaners, and of stores, and other kinds of businesses. Because prior to the 64, 65 civil rights and all the other legislation, uh, black folks could not go into Macy's or uh, McDonald's or other places like that unless they went to the back. Many times, for example, folk who were touring, athletes, artists, if there was not a black hotel in town, they would often stay at the homes of black professionals. So the whole network where people knew to do that because there was no, you could not stay in a white hotel. All people slept in their cars. That's why a lot of times people born up through the 50s and 60s who are black would have a big car. And you say, why would you have a big Cadillac in front of a, um, a little frame house? That's because they knew if they ever had to travel, they had to have a car with enough gas so we could get from point A to point B because it was not guaranteed that if they stopped at a white gas station that they would allow to get gas. So it's important for people to understand the depth and the breadth of oppression. And then after the, and that, by the way, the interstates going through was called urban renewal. Then when so-called integration was to happen, what happened in too many instances of where you had predominantly black and predominantly white schools, the so-called stellar black teachers often were transferred to the family white schools. You had some black kids who were bused over to the white schools. Rarely were white schools, white children bused over to black schools, and the white teachers that were often in those formerly predominantly black schools were often the inexperienced ones. So you're going to take an inexperienced teacher who knows nothing about the culture and put them in a classroom with black and brown girls who may appear to be more noisy than they're accustomed to, and this really happens with black boys. Well, first of all, I think our educational system is horribly wrong that wants to require any child to sit still. I think we have created a horrible sin and abomination that physical education has been taken out of the schools that people don't have to. Well, of course kids are getting in trouble. They need to do something with all of that energy. So if you don't know the experience, if you've not gone to church, if you've not gone to grocery stores with these students, you're not going to know what they need. 
you may know on the premise, on a surface level, and this is no disrespect to any white teacher, black or brown teacher, because not all black and brown teachers are great, or Asian teachers are great, but not all white teachers are great. I'm simply saying, if you don't understand the culture, if you make statements why you're no good, or you're stupid, or you don't understand, because a child maybe didn't have enough food, or maybe grandma died last night, and the parents are reeling and upset, and so they're not thinking about the child because they say, oh, the child will get over it. Well, guess what? The child won't just get over it. You don't know. So the whole gift of woman is caring is means that I'm going to take a look at this black child. I'm going to do what I can to empower them. I'm going to support them and love them. I will not excuse them from bad behavior. I am going to ask questions before I immediately send them to principal's office. So too often when black and brown kids are in predominantly white schools, number one, these teachers, I think it's one of the most ignorant things that could have been done with that no child left behind means that whole bunch of children left behind because teachers are having to teach to the test, and that is so wrong. That's evil. It's misconstrued. It's horrible policy because I can teach you to take, to take a test. That doesn't mean I thought you'd teach how to think. Mm-hmm. And if kids don't learn how to think they are crippled, so again, with a capitalist system of greed, I have control of your mind because you're not being able to taught to think. So all these kids who graduated from high school because they passed the test but can't think, they will fail miserably unless they're just naturally brilliant or get some mental says, you know what, I believe in you. You're going to sit here. You're going to learn how to read. I was in segregated schools. Nobody graduated from high school not being able to read and write and do arithmetic. That didn't happen. If you could not function at ninth grade level, then you stayed in that ninth grade level. And people who had behavioral issues weren't automatically put in uh, special education classes. Sometimes it matters, did you check the eye of the child's hearing? Have you checked their vision? What's going on at home? And people act like it's a big deal about single parents. We've always had single parents doing how sometimes people got married and people died. Or Mm -hmm. sometimes people were in war. Or they had jobs where, you know, they do truck driving, so they have to be away for a long time. So we need to stop demonizing single parents. That's why when I saw the funeral services of the late Queen of Soul, Rita Franklin, that was horrific. That was horrible horrible that was garbage for that sermon they especially have four sons sitting on the pew and their mom was a single mom they weren't in jail they're not doing drugs so i think we rush to judgment way too fast in this culture and i think oftentimes uh many teachers are afraid of their black students especially these black boys because a lot of times they grow up and they some of them are larger some of them are smarter than the teachers but because the teachers are sometimes afraid of what they don't understand, the first thing they do is send the child to the principal's office. Well, first of all, you have a little angry child who no one's listening to, who I'm sending to the principal's office, so I'm embarrassed because now everybody knows I'm being sent to the principal's office, and the principal usually will just suspend me. Well, I'm not going to be, what I'm going to do at home, unless I'm really curious and have great self-esteem, I'm going to get in trouble because there's nothing for me to do. So I think our educational system 
I think our governmental system, we have failed our children because we educate based upon zip code. A class up through fourth or fifth grade should never have more than 20 students in it. You cannot work with children when you have that many at that age. They need the special attention. And if we really cared, we would do that. And that's why uh, a person who does a woman's experience of care, first of all, we listen. Who is this child? What is the child's needs? What are their desires? What kind of background? What is their health? Is it a question of nutrition? Is it a question of they need a little bit more time? Is it a question of do they need medication? Half the children probably don't always need medication. They need to believe that someone believes in them. Because people always believed in me. That was never a question, was I going to college? Of course I was going to college. My only question was, who was going to pay for it? Because my parents couldn't afford it. They were, and I was not going to have them get in debt. And at that time, I knew about scholarships. I knew in high school that every high school in Lake Charles had the William uh, T. and Ethel Lewis Burton Scholarship. And so I figured out probably in seventh or eighth grade, I remember standing in front of the high school. I went, I don't want to be dollar in my high school class. Now, there are other smart people in my class. So how am I going to outscore them? So I made a determination. I think we had six courses in the study hour. I never took a study hour, so I'd have more points. I happened to be born with high self-esteem. I happened to be born with people who cared about me, got love and nurtured support from parents, godparents, uh, other relatives, church folks. I remember getting letters from my Sunday school teachers even in college. We're so proud of you, praying for you. So I've been so blessed. But every child deserves a chance, and every child is unique and different. But if there's not a teacher there who can or will take the time to deal with that child, then they are going to get left behind. Now, there are some folks who are sociopaths and psychopaths. That's a whole other issue. They need mental health. They need, seriously, uh, therapy, maybe medication. Most of our children... They want to learn. Children are born loving. They're not born hating. So all the skinheads, all the Ku Klux Klaners, all the white supremacists, they learned to hate. And one of the things I've learned recently is there are two energies in the universe, only two, love and fear. And people instill fear and hate is a product of fear when people need to control that which they do not understand. And on the other side of that is sometimes there are some white supremacists who actually at some point in time felt enamored with some black person and the horror is that, oh, my God, I like a black person when my family doesn't like black people, then therefore they have to succumb to hate. And that is part of our ethos that's going on in this world, this country today. That's why all the hate, all the gun violence, all the domestic violence, it comes all out of fear which then fuels the need to control. What I was, you know, looking for, you know, through the discussion of womanist experience of caring didn't even touch on what you were able to provide. So thank you. You know, we have a couple more minutes. You know, the theme of this podcast is learning, lifting, leading, social equity for and by black and brown girls and women which is aligned with the 33rd Women's Conference that took place at Shaw University in Raleigh 
back in October. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, can you make a couple of suggestions about how black and brown girls and women can be learning, lifting, and leading to help bring about social equity? Mm. Okay. Great question. One other thing I want to say about caring is that there's this myth of a strong black woman. Zonia Hurston uh, made the comment that black women were the mules of the world, and often you see it even in instances of high tech and corporate America. If the, co- if the company is failing, you see it a lot in higher ed as well. The company or institution is failing, they try to call in a black woman to be the cleanup woman. And so Dr. Shanika Walker-Barnes has a book entitled Too Heavy the Yoke, which dispels the myth of being a strong black woman. Because if people think they have to do that, that often ends up in premature death because we've tried to do too much and help too many people and never say no. So my cautionary tale is for all women, especially black women, they don't need to fix everybody and do everything for everybody. And it is important to get efficient rest, hydration, sleep, some sort of movement, exercise, and do self-care. Self-care is not narcissism, and it's not privilege and self. Self-care is important. So one of the things that, going forward, I think, to empower black and brown girls, first of all, black and brown women need to be great role models. They need not to, need to know that they don't need to fix everybody. They can't fix everybody. That's God's job. So it's important, number one, to set healthy boundaries to learn that no is not a curse word. Second, and not necessarily in this order, is to believe in themselves. And if that means setting, saying affirmations every day that I am a child of God, I am a power, I am brilliant, I'm gifted and talented, and say that every morning and every night, look in the mirror and believe it. Too many of our black and brown girls suffer from low self-esteem. They are trapped into the media's version of what beauty is. We have to know that everyone is beautiful because what's, what's really at issue is the soul and the brains and the mind and the giftedness that then reflects on, our, on the external, which means we also have to be careful what we eat. I'm um, really on a campaign if the caloric value says 120 calories per serving and this has 200 grams of sodium, that's too much. The sodium content should never be more than three quarters of a, uh, if that much, preferably not more than 50% of the sodium count, of the caloric count. So we need to push back from all these processed foods, high fructose corn syrup, salad, uh, GMO, soy foods, all that stuff. It's garbage and it's polluting our system. So we need to eat more fruit and vegetables. And for those who eat meat, lean meats, and to be very careful about not having too much fish and where it is because a lot of farm-raised foods, no disrespect to farmers, for farm-raised fish, I mean, that it's problematic. It's not necessarily organic. It's not healthy. And so to be very careful what we put in these bodies, and black and brown girls, all girls, and understand their bodies are sacred. They're a temple. They need to be respected. And therefore, whether it's a heterosexual or a gay or lesbian relationship, no one, or if it's uh, parents or older siblings or relatives, uh, girls should know that no one has a right to touch them in their areas of their vagina, on their breast, no one. 
has that right and they need to call and get some help when that happens. And if a person, some adult has a, a propensity toward child molestation, then they need to go get some help. And unfortunately, a lot of times sexual predators have not been able to be rehabilitated, then they need to make sure they're not around children. And too often in the homes, people and in families, people know, oh, well, make sure that Uncle Buddy is not near the, by the kids and not by him. Well, they, they need to confront Uncle Buddy and don't just because it happened to Mama and it happened to Grandmama, it should stop. Those are those generational curses where Grandmama was molested and then Grandmama knew either Uncle Buddy or Stepdad or Dad was molesting her daughter, but because it happened to Grandma, she let it happen to her daughter. And then when her daughter had children, her daughter then, oh, well, it happened to me. Domestic violence, sexual assault of any kind, child molestation of any kind is just straight up wrong, no ifs, ands, or buts. So we need to keep our children safe, our girls and our boys, but sometimes boys are raped and compromised at young ages. And then we wonder why people end up being sometimes drug addicts or end up doing, or having all kinds of salacious behavior. It's because they have been hurt and that hurt has been compounded and no one's ever addressed it. And almost invariably, when that happens to a child, some Body knows. So I hope all those who are listening, if it's happening to them, stop the behavior. Get the help if it happened to you and you're now 50, 60, 70 years old. Get some help. And the other piece I'd say is for black and brown girls, for anyone, it's important to deal with our hurts and our losses. So whether it was the betrayal of a person who you held confidence with or your best friend moves across country and you don't have anyone that you can talk to anymore, a grandma, a parent, or somebody close to you dies, and all the adults were so overwhelmed that no one cared about your feelings, get help. We experience losses on a daily basis from a major, like a death of a loved one, or a bad divorce, or uh, a major job loss where we had to lose everything that we owned, or that we just slight as if somebody didn't return a call, or we weren't able to put together the funds to give a certain present. So we have to deal with these losses. When we don't deal with these losses, when we don't take time to lament, to grieve, whether it's through doing poetry or doing some exercise or just talking out with someone or praying, that stuff gets compounded. So it's just like if I got groceries and I cooked vegetables and I had the peelings and I put them in a the room and I did that for three or four months, and I kept putting this garbage and waste products in the room, pretty soon I'm going to have mold and mildew and all kinds of creepy crawlies because it will become infested. The same thing happens with our bodies and our minds and our spirits. If we don't process hurts, if we don't process trauma, we end up making ourselves even sicker and sometimes end up dying prematurely because we die of heartbreak or sometimes our nerves and other body systems end up being compromised because of all the weight that we carry around. Sometimes that manifests in drug abuse, substance abuse. Sometimes that manifests in getting in bad relationships. Sometimes that manifests in compulsive, being a compulsive workaholic, a compulsive eater, whatever, because the mind and the body, they're, gonna, they're going to do something to get over, and sometimes the choices are not the healthiest. 
So I think that's what we could do to help our black and brown girls, our white, our Asian, our yellow girls, is help build that self-esteem. Spend time. They need time more than they need money from the next gadget. They need support. They also need to learn the gift of discipline and learn that there are consequences, both intended and unintended consequences, for bad behavior. And so we need that, and we need to learn how to love each other. We need to learn how to respect each other and help each other learn discipline, uh, do spiritual practices, meditation, again, stay hydrated. So everyone should be drinking half their body weight. So if a person weighs 100 pounds, they should be drinking uh, 50 ounces of water every day. And that doesn't include sodas, which are really bad for us, or juices and other things. Everyone needs half their body weight in water, need adequate sleep, and to be surrounded by people that can love them and support them. Well, thank you again. This has been, you know, such a, an important conversation to have. Um, so I very much appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Oh, and uh, I didn't get to do the rest of the, of the definition, but people can find it online or they can look in the front cover of Alice Walker's book where she has the four phases of, of the definition. And I just I mentioned two. Let me just say the last three and four. Loves music, loves dance, loves the moon, loves the spirit, loves love and food and roundness, loves struggle, loves the folk, loves herself regardless. And the last woman is to feminist as purple as the lavender. So lots of room for creative expression. Yes. Well, thank you again and... You know, look forward to engaging in further conversations about this important work. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for the honor and privilege, and I look forward to future conversations. This has been a privilege and an honor to speak with you today. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women, with our guest, Reverend Dr. Cheryl Kirk Dugan, Professor of Religion at the Shaw Divinity School at Shaw University. Special thanks for this podcast go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex Branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work.